This is Forgotten Ummah from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In the first episode of this new program, Salman Saeed and Hurun Bashir sit with Kelly Hammond to discuss her new book that explores how Muslim Chinese were at the heart of Imperial Japan's challenges to nation-building in China during the Second World War. Salam all, we would like to introduce a new occasional series called The Forgotten Ummah. It seeks to explore Muslim presences that have become isolated from perceptions of the Ummah, either geographically or historically. This is part of the commitment of the Critical Muslim Studies Project to broaden the examples by which we understand Muslimness and inform and connect across the Islamosphere. I hope you enjoy the content. Right. Um, thank you very much. I'm joined here by um, Kelly Hammond, um, talking about China's Muslims and Japan's empire. And I guess where I want to start off, Kelly, is just this perhaps urban myth or the story that um, I've heard a number of times, that during this um, period, the 1920s and 1930s, there was the, um, some idea that the Japanese emperor may convert to Islam as part of this opening up to Islam. And I wonder whether you could sort of uh, shed any light on this story, whether there's any kind of legs to it or whether it's circulate, but even whether that rumor tells us anything interesting about um, Japan's relationships with um, Muslims, especially in China, during the kind of um, this period of the 1920s, 1930s, and the Second World War. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question to start out with. And I, I mean, I've heard this rumor um, before, but I've never seen any sort of substantiated evidence that there was any plans for the emperor to convert to Islam. And, uh, the, you know, there were a number of very important pan-Islamist and pan-Asianist thinkers um, in Japan who had converted to Islam and they were very interested in actually creating an independent Muslim nation state to sort of create a buffer against the Soviets up in Northwest China. Um, and so that was something that was floated around. And I have seen um, documents talking about the creation of this um, independent Chinese nation, a Chinese Muslim nation state um, in North China, but I, I've never really seen any, have any, thought about this rumor having any legs or seen any evidence that um, the, Jap the, the, the Japanese emperor was going to convert to Islam. And so I think what that does is it sort of like frames the conversation about how important people thought that Islam was for the Japanese empire, for these rumors to sort of float around and how important they did see it as part of some of their policy decisions. Um, I know that in the Middle East and in North Africa, there was a lot of admiration for the Japanese empire, um, especially after their defeat of the Russians in 1904, 1905. So perhaps this was sort of like a, a hopeful a hopeful rumor that was floating around in, in the Middle East and North Africa as something that, you know, gave people non-Western, non-white people sort of, um, you know, perhaps they could come together and this would be um, something that would happen. So that's sort of how I would imagine or see it. Well, I mean, that's really interesting because, as you know, uh, in African-American circles, there was also a kind of a kind of valorization of the Japanese during this period, especially because uh, during uh, this idea of the Japanese as being anti-colonial, 
and right. being and challenging a white power or white supremacy, which was a global kind of phenomenon. So I can see that's going to fit in into that. Um, and, and also, of course, the Japanese record, in, and I know this is before your book, but in terms of the Versailles Treaty trying to have a clause against racism, uh, for example, in the, in the after the uh, First World War. So there is a kind of interesting to note that how Japan may have been perceived as being anti-colonial in some ways, in some circles um, during this period. Yeah, I think there was a lot of hope, you know, that Japan um, within, like you like you say, within Muslim communities in the in the United States. um, And I address some of this in my book, um, as well as, you know, in throughout Central Asia, that that Japan would provide an alternative to Western imperial or Western colonial powers. And I think that, you know, many people became deeply disillusioned with the Japanese empire. But until, you know, until 1933, um, when they left the League of Nations, I think there was sort of a lot of admiration. And even later in a lot of other circles, I really in in the United States until 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. um, I think there really was a lot of admiration um, among Muslim populations around the world for, um, for the Japanese empire. Now, Kelly, uh, one of the things that you discuss in the book, which I found really, really interesting, and it kind of links to uh, the conversation we're having um, towards the kind of beginning of the book, uh, you talk about literature that was spread around China, or propaganda literature in which the Japanese empire were attempting to kind of launch a charm offensive against Muslims. And they produced literature saying things like, Japan is the sun, Islam is the moon, which together emanate brightness to shine from East Asia throughout the entire world. Uh, could you speak a little bit about why the Japanese perhaps saw Muslims as a strategic ally or were attempting to kind of create this ally with Muslims in China? Yeah, I think um, as I, you know, as I sort of talk about in my book, they were looking to, they saw Muslims in China, number one, as a way to, to sort of help them destabilize number the KMT and the CCP. So they thought that these alliances with um, what we would call now call minorities in it, that lived in China's borderlands, um, they saw that these alliances as strategic as a way to sort of um, undermine efforts by either the Chinese nationalists or the Chinese communists um, or even the Soviet Union in China's borderland. So I think that was partly their objective. And then they sort of had a larger global aspirations. And, you know, as many people probably listening to this podcast know, there are very few Muslims in Japan. And they understood the strategic value of having, um, you know, Muslim supporters in their sort of quest for domination throughout Southeast Asia, as well as, you know, into the Indian Ocean. And they were really, you know, presenting themselves as this sort of benevolent liberator um, for colonial people. And I think that, you know, understanding the value that having a strategic partner with these uh, Muslim minorities in China um, would be for their sort of quest to uh, reach into areas that perhaps were predominantly Muslim or had larger Muslim populations was something that they they, they understood that. Kenny, that might be a good time for us to have a little conversation about um, the idea of um, Sino-Muslims and China's Muslims, as you point out in the book, and you know, there is a range of Muslims, um, 
So I guess it might be just useful to have some understanding of um, what you were, what would you understand as Sino Muslims and how you would differentiate that from other Muslim populations in, in the Chinese empire and the Russian empire and its borderlands at the time. Right. So, uh, I mean, as we all know, there is a large variety of Islamic practices and different peoples that live um, throughout Central Asia. And many of those people sort of came under Chinese purview in, in the late 19th century, or, you know, 18th, 17th centuries. Um, so the people that I talk about in my book are in Chinese known as Hui Muslims uh, or the Huizu. And in English, I call them Sino-Muslims. I don't use the, the, the Chinese CCP, Chinese um, Communist moniker to, to describe them because uh, I think that that sort of plays into a lot of the state-built categories that have been imposed on these people. So I call these the, the Hui, I call them Sino-Muslims. And these, these people um, ethnically essentially are... Chinese, they don't look Central Asian, um, and they have been in China for a long time. Essentially, when the Mongols conquered China in the 13th century, they brought in with them a lot of um, bureaucrats from Central Asia to run their empire because they didn't want Chinese Han Chinese bureaucrats to be running um, the, their empire in China. And those people stayed, they intermarried with Han Chinese women, um, and over the years, they've retained their Islamic faith, but they, um, you know, ethnically, they, they look Chinese. Um, they most, for the most part, their first language is Chinese. And they, um, you know, they're, they're very well-known intermediaries between people in the borderlands and um, Han Chinese populations. So they've had a long history of sort of interaction with the Chinese Sinosphere. Um, they write extensively. There's an important a tradition of them trying to sort of explain or make Islam legible to a Han Chinese population. And this is a, a tradition called the, the Han Kitab, where obviously the Arabic book, um, the Arabic word for book, Kitab, and Han Chinese sort of comes together and creates a sort of syncretic uh, philosophy and syncretic ideology of how Islam and Confucianism can live uh, together and operate together. So the people that I'm, you know, the sources that I deal with, I don't read Uyghur, um, I don't read Arabic. I'm dealing um, only with Chinese language sources and Japanese language sources. Um, so there is a distinction of, of these people between people like the Uyghurs or the Kazakhs, the Tajiks, um, and other non really non-Chinese groups that now find themselves as citizens of the People's Republic of China. But, I mean, just to add to this, that the distinction is not just entirely your distinction because it, within not just this um, communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party, but even before then, that distinction was made by um, um, Chinese and Japanese bureaucrats in relation to the Muslim populations, or did they have a different configuration of what constituted the Muslim other for them? Yeah, it sort of um, all sort of gelled together in the late 19th century as the Chinese nation state was trying to sort of, or the, new, the nascent Chinese nationalists were trying to figure out how to handle um, the, these, these people that were, all of these different peoples that were living throughout their empire. So, you know, there obviously has been this um, idea of the Hui for, 
a long time. And, you know, they, they, some of them do self-identify as Hui Muslims or what's Hui Zhu. Um, but in English, I just think it's, it's more useful yeah. to sort of delineate some of these categories in ways that allow us to sort of take them away from state imposed ideas. So yeah, in in the book, Kelly, you uh, you discuss how on on the part of the Japanese um, in terms of their overtures to the Chinese Muslims, uh, you know, for example, they um, provided scholarships for people to go study study in Japan. Um, they sponsored trips to the Hajj, um, and you you speak about how the Muslim communities in China reacted to this in different ways. I wonder if you could just uh, speak speak to that a little bit. Sure, I think. Um one of the things, the larger aims that I'm trying to do, or you know, get to in the book is to really show that um, not only Chinese Muslims, but many minorities um, in, you know, in, in the 20s and 30s had really conflicting loyalties and really didn't understand what their place was in the sort of new formation of the Chinese nation state. And they were trying to sort of reconcile that with some of the reforms that they were kind of instituting within their own communities. So, you know, a lot of them looked at the sort of Chinese nationalist rhetoric about, you know, the five peoples of China, the five peoples being um, the Hui Muslim, the Muslims, the Manchus, the Mongols, the Han, and the Tibetans. And they really sort of, they didn't really understand or know where they where they fit into this. Um, a lot of the rhetoric from the Chinese nationalists was quite hollow, um, you know, empty promises. And so they they were looking for, they were like looking for people to sort of provide them with some of the reform or help them institute some of the reforms within their communities that they already understood they needed to do. And they, you know, they were looking to reformers in the Middle East, you know, modern Muslim modernist reformers, and, um, and in Central Asia, they were, you know, looking at what the Jadids were doing and thinking very critically about their own communities. And so when the Japanese empire offered some of these people, you know, scholarships or the chance to build schools, I think for um, a number of people that, you know, didn't really see themselves as part of the Chinese nation state, it was really just an opportunity that they took. And, you know, maybe... In high, you know, we always kn we know that the Japanese Empire collapsed, but in you know 1934, 1935, 1936, even up until 1943, um, it could have the war could have gone the other way, and so hedge, you know, a lot of these people were sort of hedging their bets and ended up you know choosing the wrong side, but ended up you know in you know building schools and instituting a lot of these reforms that they were that they were looking to do at that time. That's really, really interesting because what it shows is that the relationship, the strategic kind of background for Japan um, in relation to the Japanese empire in, in, in China and also Southeast Asia. I wonder whether we could just um, turn the gaze a little bit to uh, Japan's relationship with um, uh, with Islam. Mm -hmm. And you're aware of the work of Jamal Ayuddin um, already on talking about this kind of joint Ottoman, the relationship between Ottoman intellectuals and Japanese intellectuals in terms of critiquing um, the Western, the universalism of the Western Enlightenment. And, and in the book, you mentioned some of these um, more concrete, um, there's a battleship Ertugul, which of course has you know, become very famous because of the um, Turkish 
novella, <laughs> TV series around Earth of Ghoul um, in 1899, coming up to. Um, oh, I didn't Japan. know there was a Turkish TV series. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a rage. It's 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 a huge, huge center um, throughout the Muslim uh, Muslim communities that you know it's become this huge um, production on Ertugul's life and his times and it's it's uh yeah it's it's actually a big thing so anyway the battleship cool. sorry go on no so cool i'm gonna have to look it up after that's great yeah. <laughs> it's about 300 episodes so i think oh, about God. <laughs> <laughs> it's great for the lockdown <laughs> but actually it's got a really high production values it's really really it's really interesting and anyway there's a bit of regression into that and um, the but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the um, history of the Japan's relationships with 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 Islam, and, and going really to because also and put it down into the context which um, of also the uh, inter, East Asian intellectuals almost creating the category of Asian during this period, or you know uh, 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 something that you know we don't realize that the notion of Asian has these specific origins rather than something which has been there since the dawn of time. So there was this kind of, so I wonder whether you can talk a little bit about um, both the kind of emergence of this Pan-Asianism mm -hmm. and also the kind of relationship, the kind of ancestry of the relationship between Japan and the Islamicate. Yeah, so I guess um, from the from my perspective, a lot of things changed after the Meiji Restoration in 1868. And, you know, um, Japan very quickly, I mean, we can call it the Meiji Restoration, but really it should be called the Meiji Revolution because it was, yeah. you know, it was completely revolutionary and society in Japan changed very quickly. And um, with, with the Meiji Restoration um, came this very important and under this understanding that like, number one, they didn't, Japan didn't want to turn into what China, what they saw was happening in China at the time. And they took um, a lot of, they took all of these, you know, well-educated men and they sort of sent them out on these expeditions to sort of learn about the world. Some of them went to the United States and a number of them uh, went to, you know, the Qajar court in Iran and, or Persia and to, the, to visit the Ottoman empire to sort of create and establish diplomatic relationships. But Beyond this, there was a, a really a sort of burgeoning of an intellectual curiosity about people beyond the borders of, um, beyond the sort of main islands of the home islands of Japan that sort of fueled a lot of intellectual curiosity. And a lot of people sort of began um, doing, you know, what we would call sort of academic research and learning about people beyond their borders. And so some of this um, was based in, you know, um, just a curiosity, an intellectual curiosity. And then, you know, this translated into people then moving to the Chinese mainland and these intellectuals sort of moving to the Chinese mainland um, to fight either in the first Sino-Japanese War, which was in 1894, 1895, and then again in the Russo-Japanese War, and really sort of having interactions with, with Muslims. And so a lot of these intellectuals started, you know, they were Pan-Asian thinkers. They were thinking about what it meant to be a part of, uh, what, what it meant to be a part of Asia at that time. And they saw Islam as a sort of 
connector or they they understood, you know, they started reading about pan-Islamism and they sort of saw parallels between these two intellectual discourse, these two discourses. So um, a lot of pan-Asianist thinkers sort of relied on writings of pan-Islamists of the late 19th century and early 20th century to sort of think through some of the things that they were also, you know, some of the ideas that they were thinking through. And so there, there is a, a number of uh, pan-Asianist uh, pan ideologists um, that a couple of them actually converted to Islam um, in the early 20th century. Um, and a number of them went on to write some pretty important works that sort of discuss the parallels between pan-Islamism and pan-Asianism. And so what I kind of do is I, I really ground that in in their in in these Japanese imperialists in in their understanding of how Islam worked in China, and so they're really sort of seeing the rest of the quote unquote Islamic world through the through the lens of Muslims from Ch Muslims in China, and they're really at the beginning at least understanding Islam through the through the Muslims that they're meeting in North China. Well, one of the things that um, you've been talking about both in the book and in this conversation, has been the kind of um, attempt, the early days of constructing a nation state. And you talked about Chinese nation state and also, I suppose, part um, from Japanese nationalism. Right. Uh, but at the same time, both pan-Islamism and pan-Asianism are kind of transnational in some ways, mm -hmm. um, or trying to work around a, a, a bigger horizon than the now. And I just wondered whether you... Um, wanted to say something really about the tensions of our trying to construct what um, a, a national state based on a kind of almost a European understanding of what a nation state might be, and the heterogeneity, um, especially in, in relation to China and, 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 and Japan's sense of heterogeneity of the region that it wants to dominate. Um, do you think they were kind of, uh, how did the Japanese sort of think about the notion of Japanese identity in relation to um, you know, these different populations. And also at that time, was the notion of Japanese homogeneity already well established or is that still something up for grabs in a way? Um, Those are enormous questions. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that at the, <laughs> I think that this is really the main contradiction that, you know, they they were trying to reconcile and continue to try to reconcile throughout the entire war. And maybe it's still, you know, one of the enduring problems and contradictions of the, the Chinese nation, the, the current Chinese nation state is to sort of how do you, how do you bring all of these people together when they're also vastly different. And, you know, the, there was the ideology of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere that attempted to, you know, do that. But um, I think that, 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 that it really, this tension between the Japanese empire being uh, in essence, an, you know, an imperial, what we would understand to be, you know, in a, you know, a, a very function, high functioning and, much like any other imperial power at the time and trying to reconcile with, you know, what it was trying to attempt to do um, in the places that it was occupying. And so I think many, what, 
what I'm trying to show, I think, is that uh, what the Japanese empire did was, uh, in a lot of cases, it actually provided some of the tools for people that had um, aspirations for national liberation after the war was going to be over, or, you know, they were promising liberation to um, places that they had occupied, such as Indonesia or, you know, the Dutch East Indies and Burma. Um, and and what they what 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 they did in many cases, and especially with you know a lot of these Muslims who went to Tokyo to study or studied at universities in Manchukuo, was they was they really provided them with the skills and the knowledge to um, create their 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 post war anti colonial anti nationalist move or na nationalist movements, um, and sort of how that played out is something that might have gone very differently had Japan not lost the war. But um, yeah, and so and so then you asked a, a question about Japanese homogeneity. And I think that that has always been a sort of myth of of like a Western construct or a Western ideas about how Japan imagines itself or of right wing Japanese nationalists. Um, I think that there's a very, even at the time, I think between in Japanese academic circles um, in the 30s and 40s, there was a very good understanding that there were different types of people in Japan, um, you know, from the Burakumin all the way to the Okinawans to people in Hokkaido and the Ainu. Um, so th I think that there, there, the, the idea that Japan is this sort of homogeneous uh, state, I, I, don't, I, I think that that's sort of like an enduring Western idea that, or a right-wing nationalist idea from Japan that perhaps is is not one that was has really ever been that much embraced by people um, who actually, you know, are just normal people that live in Japan. So really, thanks for that, Kelly. Really interesting. One of the uh, really significant and one of the points that I found really interesting towards the end of the book um, you discuss an op-ed written by a senior Muslim uh, towards the end of the war, uh, where he asks the question regarding where, where senior Muslims would fit into this new post-war nation state. Right. And you highlight that um, during this period, interestingly, uh, Pakistan was occasionally invoked as a positive example of Muslim self-governance uh, by some Muslims in China. Um, so I'm just, I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, the, was was there at this point an aspiration for uh, autonomous kind of Muslim state or anything of that sort? Uh, yeah, I think that's always, you know, sort of been on the radar of numerous people that live that are, are in China. You know, they there are regions up in sort of northwest China that in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties were very highly majority Muslim, and there was talk of. Um, you know, creating independent, they were essentially run as independent Muslim fiefdoms by the, the, the Ma family. And so um, I think there probably was talk about that. But, you know, after the war, China dis descended quickly into civil war. Um, and, you know, the, then finally, five years later, in 1949, we have the establishment of the People's Republic of China, that that very quickly and quite efficiently um, consolidates power um, while the Chinese nationalists
retreat to the island of Taiwan. And, you know, uh, I have an article coming out in the spring. It's called Cold War Mosque. And it looks at the construction of the um, Taipei Grand Mosque through the lens of, you know, the 20,000 or so Chinese Muslims who decided to retreat to Taiwan with the Chinese nationalists. Um, and how they spent, you know, the 50s and 60s really trying to sort of muster up support from anti-communist Muslims around the world in their fights to take back the Chinese mainland from the Chinese communists. So, you know, they're, they're um, writing letters to the Turkish brigade that's fighting in the Korean War and offering their prayers and support for them because they see the Turks as, you know, an anti-communist ally in their fight, you know, perhaps to take back the Chinese mainland. And they're really happy when um, Suharto takes power from Sukarno in Indonesia because they see that as a sort of victory over communism um, in Southeast Asia. So, you know, these tensions sort of continue to play out in, in new ways in the post-war era. And so it, it's sort of interesting to see the, the ways that um, the Chinese Muslims are then used and appropriated by the, the new states that come out in the post-war era. I think this is really an um, interesting point because um, you, you know, the idea of Muslim autonomy um, has also been one of the main driving factors towards denial of uh, Muslim rights, et cetera. And we see that quite clearly now yes. in, in, in what's happening to the Uyghurs and also the idea of this being, uh, you know, the reason is mainly, to, there's two kind of elements to this. There was the war on terror discourse that, you know, there's huge terrorism and Islam is, has natural proclivities towards terrorism. That's one part of it. But there's also the kind of secessionist element to this. Right. And I thought, in, um, I was just wondering whether you'd want to say something about, um, I mean, you mentioned the Ma family. And what, to what extent do you think these kind of, um, the, the, the institutionalization of Islamophobia in recent years in China and its intensification is mm -hmm. really a response to this, um, these kinds of fears, or it's kind of an attempt to simply to do what? I mean, I think one of the, the last sentence of your um, book is really, really moving because it reminds people that, you know, what is happening to the Uyghurs has almost, has a precedent of what happened to population groups in, 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 in one particular population group in, 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 uh, in the Second World War. And so yeah. it really was kind of interesting. It, it, I thought maybe it might be worth reflecting on how that relationship between Sino Muslims and bringing it up to date or, um, to what is perhaps happening in China's policy and maybe Japan's policy as well towards um, Muslimness and, uh, um, right now. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. I think there there has since there have been Muslims living in China, you know, in larger numbers of populations, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, there always has been this sort of like ongoing vacillation between, you know, state power and Muslim identity. And there has been crackdowns, um, especially during the Qing dynasty um, on Muslim warlords who perhaps gained too much autonomy or on Muslim uh, Muslims, you know, who were unhappy with the way that the, the, the Qing state was sort of 
um, in, you know, running their, doing what they were doing in their, in their, in their provinces. So, you know, the, but I think what's happening now is, is completely, is distinct and different for um, a number of reasons. Um, I think for a long time, the Chinese state sort of understood or valued um, their Muslim inter interlocutors as sort of proxies to creating relationships with other Muslim nation states. I, I, I think that's really changed. I think that they've, um, the war on terror obviously gave them the sort of vocabulary to cast the Uyghurs as terrorists, as um, Sean Roberts very clearly shows in his book. And I think that their new real sort of the, the, the technology, the, the surveillance technology that they've been able to institute in Xinjiang um, it, it is really just a sort of different level than has ever been seen before. Uh, I also think that the, the, the Xi, Xi Jinping regime is, is really sort of threatened by the, the Uyghurs for some reason um, and sort of sees this as an why opportunity. Sorry, Kelly, why do you think they're particularly threatened by the Uyghurs? Is it particular to the regime? Because it I mean, or is this something the logical development of, um, you know, since 1949? As you mentioned, there would seem to be ups and downs in this yeah. relationship. No, I, I, you know, I, I, I draw parallels to the past, but that's only to sort of remind us that the, these things are, the, the, these things do, do have precedent. But I do think that what's happening right now is, is different. And I think the threat is number one, um, there, there is a growing concern that, you know, difference in China is something that should be sort of quashed. Um, and so the Uyghurs are seen as, you know, very, very different from Han Chinese. And so there, this is sort of like Hanification campaigns or cynicization campaigns that are happening, you know, not only to the Uyghurs in, in, in Tibet, as well to Tibetans, as well as in Mongolia, to Mon inner Mongolians, as well as to the Hui, you know, so there's these efforts to sort of erase um, any signs of foreign influence. And this is, you know, a crackdown that's happening that's going beyond the Uyghurs. And I think the Uyghurs are just sort of like a, a test subject to see how far they could push things. Um, because really, you know, a lot of people don't really know or, or, you know, now it's in the public discourse, but we've been, I've been talking about the Uyghurs publicly for many years. And it's really only recently that it's sort of entered public consciousness. And even if you talk to, you know, I was in um, in Israel and Gaza uh, two years ago, and I went to meet in with the PA, the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah with a number of people. And I asked them why they don't sort of, I asked um, one of the members of the Palestinian Authority why they don't sort of create solidarity with the Uyghurs, you know, as, as oppressed peoples. And maybe perhaps they could sort of, and they, they got, they were like the who, and then they had to think about who I was talking about. And so I, I think even within Muslim communities, um, there's sort of this idea that perhaps the Uyghurs are so different and the Uyghurs are not really Muslims, especially between in people in the Middle East. And they can sort of fly under the radar. They, they sort of like don't get paid much attention to. So, um, I mean, that's really how I sort of, how I sort of see it. Um, so they were sort of a test subject to see how far, you know, the international and see how far they could push these sort of new security state, the, 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 the security state without 
you know, until without Western or Muslim nation states sort of pushing back. And we're, we're starting to see pushback, but I mean, the, this has been going on really since 2015. No, it's, it's, it's really incredible that how much has happened. And I think in, uh, it's worth mentioning to the listeners that in this, um, in your book, you actually do suggest that if Muslim communities and Muslim states in particular were to take a stronger stance on this, it could have some uh, beneficial effect for the, uh, the Uyghur community. Right. Um, and, and I think one of, the, one of the biggest tragedies is, of course, that by and large, there's been so little pushback from leadership of Muslim communities on this area for a number of reasons. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky subject for a lot of people. And we're starting to see, you know, Malaysia has recently pushed back a little bit and Turkey is doing a little bit of pushback, but... It, it's hard. I understand that they're sort of like it, it, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, that's there. Um, don't want to leave you with a between a rock and a hard place. Um, I know, by the way, the University of Arkansas in Little Rock. No, it's in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, so we're up in the north. So that metaphor about the hard place, rock and the hard place, wouldn't have sort of flowed really through the rock. <laughs> well, it's still very rocky here. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kelly, it's been really great um, talking to you. Um, wish you well with your new project, which I think you said is going to be on looking at the Cold War and yeah. Asian Muslims. Do you want to say a little bit about that? If- yeah, it's it's tentatively called Islam and Politics in the East Asian Cold War. So sort of looking at the ways that the Chinese communists, the um, the KMT in Taiwan and post-occupation Japan uh, managed their relationships with post-colonial Muslim nation states. Well, I look really look forward to that. And, Thank you. Um, and we will... Obviously, it's been great talking to you and it's been rewriting. And I would urge everyone to read the book China's Muslims and Japan's Empire. Thank um, you. And for we'll this. put that on our website. I really want to thank both of you for this um, engaging and uh, great conversation and uh, for taking the time to talk with me today. So thanks a lot. It's been an, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for giving us your time. And um, we look forward to speaking to you again once the next, next book comes out. Yeah, so like in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Kelly. What was that article, by the way? You just said the article on um, the Taipei Mosque, by the way, that's just already out. What journal is it's, that? It's, it's going to be coming out in 20th century China in May 2022. Okay, if the Chinese government doesn't have it to do with it. Yes, okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll cut that bit out. <laughs> All, right. All right, Kelly, you take care. Okay, thanks so much. All right. This was an episode of Forgotten Ummah, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies Project. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating. Uh, I'm going to switch off the, um, I'm going to mute myself and you mute yourself and reduce the voice. And reduce your volume as well, so we just keep the screen. All right. Can you hear me now? Just, just a minute.
Uh, can you hear me on this? I can uh... hear you. I okay. can hear you. Hold on. Let me just make sure you're hearing me from the right place. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to make sure there's no echo. All right. Say something. Uh, I think I'm, I'm quite loudable now. Can you hear okay. me properly? Okay. I can hear you properly. Can you hear me properly? Okay. So what we'll do, we'll count to ten, and ten, uh, fifteen seconds to so it allows them to there, and then we will start at uh, in fifteen, um, in twenty-five, one twenty-five on, on the minutes thing. Yeah. Okay. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Um, this is Aisha Khan from Shanghai University. And I welcome you to this podcast on a very important topic about uh, recent developments in Pakistan uh, that present us an opportunity uh, to reflect not merely upon the past three years of the rule of Prime Minister Imran Khan. Um, our basic purpose here is not to do a post-mortem of the twists and turns of the of the Kotodian uh, politics of this period, uh, but we will actually try to analyze the, the broader meaning, uh, limitations, and possibilities offered by a resurgent Islamic discourse and praxis in Pakistan. So we have with us a very renowned scholar, Professor Salman Sayyid, uh, whose groundbreaking work on Islamism and Islamophobia in the context of ongoing Western hegemonic discourses embedded in Eurocentrism and Orientalism that uniquely positions him to offer a theoretically robust assessment of Pakistan today. So thank you very much, Professor Sayyid, for your time. Thank you very much, Aisha. Uh, Professor Sayed, I want to um, begin by introducing our listeners to, to this fairly important threads that run through your work. Um, you developed this notion of a clearing that Muslims must do in order to begin this, this process of you know, escaping this Eurocentric discursive limitations. And uh, you have also described Islamism to be the to be the political assertion of the demand for Muslim autonomy. So, if in that understanding, Islamism does not merely refer to you know to certain parties and movements of political Islam, uh, but to a broader Islamic trajectory and praxis. And uh, one of the criticisms of Khan was that he instrumentally used religion for political purposes. Um, how would you respond to this criticism, and uh, and would you indeed consider this uh, this political tendencies associated with Imran Khan as as a movement of Islamism? Um, I think the first thing I would say to you is this: this criticism uh, is often made about um, the kind of politicization of religion or religion and politics being mixed in in certain ways. To understand this, you have to see that the category of religion does a lot of lifting, heavy lifting in this situation, because the assumption is always that there's something called religion and there's something called politics and they represent separate spheres of life. Yeah. Um, the problem is this, that religion, the category of religion comes from a understanding of by the enlightenment of Western forms of Christianity which sees itself as being distinct from politics. 
Hmm. When you try and apply this to this distinction um, in other um, traditions and conventions, it doesn't really hold. So when you hmm. start saying religion and politics should be separate or hmm. are separated uh, in the way that they ha- the Enlightenment thought that Western Christianity was separated, hmm. you are hmm. actually uh, not only just making a normative claim about the position of politics, but you're all, uh, and religion, but you're also doing something more. You're actually saying that the category of religion is something which is um, applicable to all kinds of conventions and practices, etc., rather than simply mm-hmm. establishing it. So that's the first point I would make. It seems to me that politics or the politics is always going to be about things which are important. So, it, 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 so I don't think the idea of instrumentality is particularly elevating or interesting. People say, well, Imran Khan is using religion. I mean, leaving aside that the um, Faisal, uh, who's involved in, let's say, the PDM, some of the leaders of the PDM come from, strictly speaking, they are proper Mulanas, whether they indulge in diesel or not. But so there is a, you know, there, that means odd. So it really is this, not so much that is being used. The question is that why would anyone think that mm. mobilizing religious language uh, or what they consider to be religious language, why would that be effective? Why is mm. it that this is important? So the so there are two problems with that. One is a kind of general conceptual problem that religion uh, is, the idea that religion is separate from politics is simply a Eurocentric attempt to restructure all these space worlds. And secondly, it doesn't really answer the question, if Imran Khan is using religion, then why is it that the people in PDM are not seem to be using religion? And what would it mean to use religion anyway? Okay. Um, so the, the next question is related to this, uh, this progressive Pakistani academics, you know. So they have they have decried the fact that uh, you know the the Western Muslim academics and you know they they always talk about this and they say that they impose their own frameworks of Islamophobia uh, onto this um, to this ostensibly religious and perhaps even fundamentalist you know societies like Pakistan where Islamophobia they see that Islamophobia is not really an issue and they they also claim yeah they they also claim that the, you know that the class of mullahs or the clerics. Uh, they have this uh, significant fundamentalist and conservative sections of of this general population. And uh, these are the much greater issues than Islamophobia in Pakistan. So like uh, there is this uh, scholar professor, Sher Ali Treen, and he, he said that the concept, uh, he wrote about this concept of Imranophobia and he closely tied it to Islamophobia. And he sees that, you know, Islamophobia well, uh, and alive in the discourses of the of the Pakistani liberal left. Uh, how could you share your thoughts on this? And then we will come to uh, to other questions later on. Sure. I think, look, the, firstly, the, the, the so-called progressives in Pakistan, mm-hmm. I think they really belong to the category of Kamalists. And they're not just found in Pakistan. They're found in many, many parts of um, Muslim communities throughout the world. They are, the so-called progressives were the ones who cheered el-Sisi when he overthrew the only democratically elected government in, in, in Egypt. 
they are the ones who support the, support the coup in, in, in the attempted coup in Turkey. So the, the record of the progressives, however they may position themselves, is problematic. The idea that Western academics are, are imposing Islamophobia on them, uh, I don't quite understand because everything that they do is basically an internalization of Western colonial impositions anyway. So why would they object to that? So in a sense that the whole idea, for example, the category of fundamentalist, again, mm. it's simply an importing uh, American history and applying it without, theori- um, w- without proper theorization to everything um, in, 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 in the case of Pakistan, etc. Uh, and I think Sher Ali is quite right. Really, what is behind this is their own hostility mm. towards, um, um, towards is- is their Islam. In other words, their own Islamophobia, which is the problem. Um, and, and while this is not to argue that um, there are not um, issues or practices which one can contest, it does seem to me that to argue that this is the problem here is to do with the imposition of Islamophobia uh, from Western academics is completely misunderstanding the point. And also it doesn't take into account, they have no answer to this. They mm. call themselves progressive, but they haven't really progressed since the 1950s or the 1960s in their thinking. So either mm. they're outdated to a sort of version of Marxism in which you know religion is the opium of the people and they start to look for this very kind of economically reductive ar- uh, argument, or they follow kind of even kind of 19th century racist arguments and redeploy them in, 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 in Pakistan. Um, I suppose they may have uh, objected to be called Varan Sahibs by Imran Khan as well, but they mm. are part of that formation. They may mm. consider themselves to be incredibly critical. Yeah, it's interesting to see on what issues they are, um, what issues they're active and other issues they're not active. And, and mm. the problem here is this, that they, they often confuse their own kind of lifestyles uh, mm. uh, and, and the way that they present themselves are able to present themselves to some extent to a global audience as being somehow people of the Enlightenment without mm. recognizing that the Enlightenment itself was it, it had was an excuse for racism, excuse for colonialism and uh, as much as anything else. Um, so mm. I think they are actually uh, out of time in relation to, for example, what is happening is a kind of deepening of decolonization. And these people, many of them who have um, gained from the kind of colonial um, inheritances and colonial continuities, um, however they may present themselves, are really, really um, unable to deal with these kinds of critiques. So I think that's one of the issues. And I don't want to personalize it in terms of their own um, individual character. But the real issue is this, that you need to look at this in a much more of a uh, a, a global perspective, um, in a sense that what you're seeing is this this kind of Islamophobia being imposed globally, including in Muslim societies. And this is why I call them Kamalists, because in a sense, Mustafa Kamal, uh, you know, changes the, the all the changes that he brings in. Basically, it's a project of westernization. Mm. And that is what is uh, now. The, colo- co- uh, the colonial authorities had a project of westernization. The mm. Kamalists have taken up a project of westernization. This is why, you know, they're often called uh, by the Iranian journalist in the 1960s, Ahmed Ali, and before him, 
um, a number of Iranian philosophers talked about West toxification. Mm. Um, these basically are, and there is an element of West toxification in which only can imagine a future as being inspired by the West. And it understands civilization as being Western. It understands, um, you know, progress as being Western. It understands betterment of the human condition as being Western. So their mm. only idea, however they want to put it together, is simply to be Western. And, and, mm. and that, in a sense, doesn't take into account the, you know, the shift towards a post-Western conjuncture um, and the hollowing out of Western um, claims for universalism. So I think mm. this is their real challenge for them, that it's, they, are, they demonstrate so clearly Islamophobia. Um, and rather than dealing with that, they want to say, oh, it's, a, it's being imposed upon them and this Islamophobia doesn't apply, when everything mm. they do or say demonstrates mm. Islamophobia. So, mm. for example, in Kamala circles, there were people, certain kinds of lifestyle meant that you could not um, get fairness. You could not uh, make progress in your career. Um, mm. You can't have certain kinds of agencies. So I think there are an example of Islamophobia, um, and I would rather that they tended to their Islamophobia and reflect upon that and you know, have engagement on that, rather than complaining that um, people from outside don't see um, their lived realities, etc. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Professor Sayed, there is, uh, there is this notion that um, that Khan's ideological orientation, and they often, you know, criticized him for being, uh, for being parochial and you know, chauvinist and even fundamentalist. So, in a in a widely circulated, Asha, you uh, have to stop using this word fundamentalist. Uh, are you <laughs> quoting them? Because the problem here is this: it's the problem of fundamentalism. What do they actually mean by fundamentalism? Fundamentalism emerges in in, in and it's used uh, in the United States to talk about literal readings of the Quran or literally mm. the Bible, right? Mm. So the idea mm. is this by extension that they call fundamentalists are basically people who are involved in literalism, literalist. But many of the people who were included in the ranks of the fundamentalists, people like um, mm. um, Sayyid Qutb, Mantudi, or Khomeini, or um, mm. Shariati, all of these people, by any stretch of the imagination, are not literalists. Mm. Um, you know, and so that's one problem. So the entire project of Islamism is really a, is not um, simply predicated on literalist readings. Mm. Secondly, I would dare anyone to have a literalist reading, a literal reading of the Quran. The Quran is not like the Bible. You cannot have a literal reading of the Quran. Mm. And, and, and there's a kind of 1400 years of literature demonstrating mm. the problem of you cannot have a literal reading mm. of the Quran. So the Quran will not tell you that the planet is 6,000 years old. You have, you mm. know, it doesn't tell you all of these things because that's not the kind of text it is. So when mm. people say it's fundamentalist, they're basically trying to get involved into uh, a different kind of argument or a different kind of framework, which has very little relevance for what is actually at stake around mm. the mobilization of, of um, Islam in, in, in social and, and political settings. Now, that mm. doesn't mean that every single mobilization or interpretation or, or move, you have to accept that. 
but don't talk about it in terms of fundamentalism because very mm. often it's mm. actually the fundam you know it is the the nature of the islamicist reading is anti-literalist mm. which is actually being emancipatory and mm. uh, and against that and in fact it's not it's not a complete coincidence that in the end who supports the most authoritarian regimes and the rollback of um, democratization projects or popular will, for example, again in Egypt, the Salafis were with al-Sisi against the Muslim Brotherhood. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that they, they perhaps need to be a bit more nuanced about what hmm. they're talking about. And one thing we could do is abandon the category of fundamentalism because hmm. the only, the most of the fundamentalists I ever meet and, and the one we're talking about are really enlightenment fundamentalists, if you want to put exactly. it. If fundamentalism is just a word for dogmatism, then the most mm. dogmatic people mm. in Pakistani society are the ones who are actually liberals, who have no understanding of the complexities or the sophistication of mm. um, um, you know, thinking and, and interpretations based around Islam and Madrasa. Mm. They, they are dismissive and they look down upon these people and they mm. think they're unparth when they have hardly read anything more mm. than readers digest themselves. Mm. Uh, no, but this is, this is, these are the terminologies that the critics, you know, the liberal critics use against Imran Khan, you know. So that's, that's why, you know, I quoted these terminologies and I use them for this question just for the clarification. Uh, so they, they okay. say, you know, because in, a, in a, a, this, uh, this, there is a, this widely circulated essay and it is written by this uh, Pakistani intellectual, Amar Ali Jan. And uh, he, the, the point he made was that, you know, uh, Khan was responsible for fueling religious sentiment and xenophobia. And similarly, you know, this essay and others, other essays sought to refute any notion that Khan has any principal position against Western hegemony. Uh, because one point that they say that Khan is senselessly and irrationally anti-Western, and that is his anti-Americanism that mainly represents his religious, you know, religion and cultural conservatism and his rejection of embracing universal values. And uh, in this regard, you know, Khan has created, they say that Khan has created a fictional and baseless category of the, of the West as part of a false binary, you know. So, and this is how the liberals argue. And the second, uh, the second thing that they say that, you know, the Pakistani progressive make is that, uh, especially, you know, specifically if we talk about in economic terms, they say that Khan has kept Pakistan subordinated to the IMF and the Washington consensus. So how would you respond to these two points that the Pakistani liberals and progressives make? With great deal of patience, I hope. Um, <laughs> I think the problem here is this. Well, there are two, there are two really important points. Um, if one of the problems is really this presentism. So Imran Khan is responsible for fueling um, re this religious kind of feeling. Before yeah. that, it was Zia. Before that, so how would you explain this transformation occurring across one and a half billion Muslims? Um, oh. This is not something which has just happened um, now in the last three years or four years or something like that. What has been happening for at least 50 years is being the assertion of um, Muslim political identity with our Muslims. Um, and I think this is really, really important to recognize this global phenomenon that the emergence of Muslims, um, Muslim agency is what's going on. 
Um, it's going on in France, it's going on in, in Austria, it's going on in many, many parts of the world. And, and, there, and that is to do with a historical process. It's not something which is um, just the will of one person. So that's the first thing, that they need to understand this as a global phenomenon. The other thing which is interesting about this global phenomenon, it is a phenomenon that most um, writing from um, Orientalist writing and most writing on Islam still tends to be dominated by Orientalists, especially in, in, in places, in, in liberal circles, in places like, um, um, you know, in, 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 in Pakistan and, and, other, uh, and other societies where, you know, other Islamic societies. So the idea is really is this, that they cannot explain this phenomenon. And this phenomenon is always said, it will be over in this year. Um, basically, it was going to be over in five years. It'll be over after Osama bin Laden is killed. It'll be over after ISIS is crushed. It'll be over after this. Because they relate this long-term transformation in the world, in the conscious of Muslimness, as being related to um, particular events. These events are symptoms. They're not the causes of the transformation, because if they were the causes, then it would have been, uh, it would have simply dissipated, as it has been prophesied to be dissipated. The fact that it hasn't is one of the reasons why confusing cause and symptom is actually not particularly helpful. So that's the first thing. Um, so part of this way of talking about this is that you are actually seeing a deepening of the process of decolonization. And the decolonization process has been going on for at least 100 years or more. And, and, and it's basically been reaching the point where the very idea of what they came against universal values is, is being shown to be what was considered to be universal values was simply a projection of Western racist fantasies. Mm. So when they talk about universal values, if these values are really universal, then why is it that Muslims are excluded from them? Why is it exactly. that a Muslim has mm. to become something else to be part mm. of that universal value? Mm. Uh, so that's, and, and, and what you can apply, not just a Muslim, but anyone who considered to be outside of the Western mm. um, imaginary has to have an apprenticeship to become universal. So clearly these values are not universal or pluriversal in a sense that they are a pooling of humanity's thinking. They are basically a way of saying, whatever happened in Western history is the thing mm -hmm. that everyone else needs to aspire to. So it's almost another way of talking about civilizing values. Remember when the colonial European colonialists came the argument, one of the arguments they made is we are here to civilize you. We're not here to mm. steal your land or steal your wealth or brutalize your population. That's just a hobby. But we are here to civilize you. And the problem mm. with the civilizing, of course, you could never become civilized enough because mm. civilization wasn't a benchmark, a static benchmark. It kept on moving with whatever mm. it was. And it was never meant to be. Civilization meant that you stop being yourself and you be like ourselves. But the thing mm. that was very um, specific to European colonial uh, racial order was the, the invention of racism made it impossible for those subjects to ever be civilized because racially they were prevented from doing so. 
And this is very, very different from other imperial formations. And we need to understand this, that in the history of other empires, the difference between the rulers and the ruled often would over time could fade. Now, the, take sort of Queen Victoria. She had many, many children. Think about India as being, uh, you know, what was considered to be the crown and the jewel. And mm -hmm. India and, uh, you know, South Asia had many, many uh, Maharajas and Rajas and all of them. How many of them were married into the, how, um, the Queen Victoria's family? Now, no of, often when mm. you would have these kinds of conquests, part of it mm. was to build up with ruling houses, alliances, mm -hmm. etc., through this kind of pre um, process. Again, you know, you can make a separate judgment on, on the gender dynamics of that process, but it is, seems interesting that in the history of these kind of monarchies, there is limited evidence that mm -hmm. um, this was sealed by saying we will have a marriage alliance. Which, so why isn't that the case, right? So mm -hmm. one of the projects here is this to recognize that the European colonial empires were racial states. Mm. What they have left behind are remnants of racial states and, uh, who are, and the racist, uh, racism is encoded in nationalism, which is uh, often xenophobic. And the expressions of xenophobic nationalism take the, are the main, take their position of being anti-Muslim. So if you take the position around the uh, ref, uh, Afghani refugees in Pakistan, um, often they are blamed for, by national circles for causing all the crime in Pakistan. Mm. If you take the position of the Ak Party, if it wasn't for the Ak Party, five million Syrians would not mm. have been allowed into Turkey because the so-called liberals would have said, these, we need to keep these out. If you look at what's happening around the, the flirtation with the idea of having Israel uh, relations with Tel Aviv, for example, what is the logic of that? It is to forgetting, well, we shouldn't really care about the Palestinian people. But the reason we care about the Palestinian people is not simply because it is because, you know, the humanity and what they're suffering, because, but also Palestinian people are a symbol for the fact that we are not going to be a xenophobic nationalist like what's happening in India which will simply turn itself into, um, complete itself in that way. So mm. nearly every single of these projects in a way, the support for um, Tel Aviv, the support for rapprochement with, with the uh, government in India at this point, forget about Kashmir, which is actually in many circles planning horrendous escalation of mm. violence against Muslims there. And if they start expelling Muslims, then what will we be doing? Mm. So I think what I would say to you is this, this entire argument that, you know, Imran Khan has brought all of this into it shows a degree of the superficiality of their analysis mm. and the outdated way that they think and the complete delusional character and the failure to recognize and reflect upon their own positionalities on this. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that the, um, you know, many of them face. Because in the end, there is a criticism here that, you know, they often want to speak on behalf of the people, but they don't really like the people. 
And it seems to me that is a fundamental challenge here. Now, and, 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 the, and the problem with that is if you look at the, for example, the history of the left in the Islamic age, for very large reasons, it's Orientalism and its racism and its Islamophobia has prevented it playing a actually constructive part in the body politic because they have found it too difficult mm. to, to get over the Eurocentricism of much Marxist thought. Mm. And as a consequence, they basically remove themselves from that conversation and, and go around complaining that these, and this is why they never become uh, meaningful, that because they can't under, they cannot connect with the population because they don't understand the way that Islam is, or Muslimness rather than Islam is expressed is central and it cannot be simply read by 19th century Orientalism and 20th mm. century Islamophobia. Okay. Um, Professor, uh, my next question is related to your upcoming book, that is The Promise of Pakistan. Um, there are some, you know, like uh, this author, Faisal Devji, and he claimed that, you know, Pakistan was a Muslim Zion. And Have you noticed how odd that is? He's talking about Pakistan being a Muslim exactly. Zion when you have exactly. the BJP and, and um, Modi linked in yeah, so many yeah. different levels with the Israeli uh, with the project, uh, mm. both in terms of um, alliances and practices and conventions, but also the template for what will happen in Kashmir. So um, I find that, I mean, I find that very, very odd um, mm. idea that, you know, you talk about this um, as yeah. Pakistan is a Muslim Zion. Um, yeah. I wonder whether they would consider Israel to be a, a Jewish Pakistan. I mean, this is another kind of element, considering that Pakistan actually happened in 47. Um, yeah. Again, that shows a certain way of positioning things, which exactly. I, I think the point that you, know, you made before, there is a liberal way of trying to read politics. And liberalism is, is, is really, really doesn't understand politics. Because mm. one of the things that liberalism tries to do is say, well, we want to get rid of binaries. Mm. But the political exists when they're friends and enemies. Liberalism doesn't acknowledge that it is making, it has friends and enemies. Mm. It thinks that its enemies are irrational, stupid, backward, etc. Not that they are equal and they may have different positions on that. As a result, uh, you know, those who fight in the name of humanitarianism are capable of horrendous violence because those who they fight against are considered to be subhuman or not human. And we saw that with Guantanamo. We saw, you know, there's so many different examples of that. We've seen how the European settler states were involved in practices of and, and genocide and ethnic cleansing on a horrendous scale mm. because those who opposed them were no longer considered to have any right to oppose them. And I think this is one of the aspects of liberalism in a way that it does not know how to deal with antagonism, um, even though it creates that antagonism. So mm. it, you always find yourself in a delusional way mm. thinking about not only do you have to say that you're opposed, but you don't even acknowledge that you have the right to dissent because the dissent itself is considered to be inadmissible. Mm. But you had a question about Devji. 
Uh, yes. The question is that, you know, he made this comparison of uh, Pakistan and, you know, Israel on the basis of this, you know, that they both are Israel and Pakistan is based on this nationalist project. You know. Uh, he created this uh, uh, this this assertion on the basis of religious nationalism, and it is precisely that you know the the religious element uh, to the nation that and he said that you know it is the religious element that is causing all the violence and national chauvinism and civil war and so on, and he he also implied that thing you know there that there are specific uh, case of the merger of religion and nationalism in Pakistan. And that is what at the center or at the heart of this uh, mass psychosis and this uh, social and political pathologies that have plagued the country, according to him. Uh, regardless whether you, you, know, you agree with his thesis or his argument or not, uh, but how do you feel that, you know, that, that Pakistan vision and, and project was tainted by its Muslim uh, component? And uh, this is, you know, like... Uh, uh, like would normal nation state and the features and the structures and the functions have run uh, more smoothly, you know, uh, if Pakistan had not chosen Islam as the main unifying factor, because critics okay. give this example of uh, of this, you know, the breakup of East Pakistan into Bangladesh, and they say some major development as uh, as the end of the delusional dream of a Muslim homeland. How would you, you know, no, respond to I this? would say that the breakup of uh, East Pakistan and its translation into Bangladesh is a testimony mm. to the uh, um, delusional element of nationalism, not, is Muslim, mm. not um, Islamism or Muslimness. The reason why, the underlying reason why East Pakistan seceded from West Pakistan is because West Pakistani elite um, uh, basically read East Pakistan not through a uh, lens of Muslimness, but through the mm. lens of racial British inherited characteristics. These are Bengalis, they're not, they're not really proper Muslims, etc., etc. Mm. So if there had been Muslimness um, mm. and, and more kind of focus on Muslim identity, mm. then actual um, Kamalism, which tried to create a national xenophobic uh, mm. um, identity, it is it, East Pakistan would not have become Bangladesh. So mm. that's the first, and I think it's a really important point here. If you think about mm. the language issue, why would mm. it? It is nationalism that demands nationalism of the West, European kind, where it says there's one state should have one language. Um, there is no reason why there should have been one language or why the language had to be um, imposed on that. Secondly, there was no reason why when Majibur Rahman won the major uh, majority of the vote, he should not have been prime minister. What was the rationale mm -hmm. for it? It wasn't Muslimness saying, you can't make him a prime minister. It was nationalism mm -hmm. saying, we can't have mm -hmm. Bengalis being prime minister. I mean, that's so, this is one of the total misreadings of the mm -hmm. history of Pakistan because it's read through Kamalist lines, mm. any kind of comparative example. They read these things in basically what, you know, describe as indological discourse, which is like a South Asian version, a, a version of Orientalism, where the idea is this, that fundamentally South Asia is India, India is Hindu, anything mm. else is external to it. 
including, uh, of course, Pakistan and the creation of Pakistan as a state. There could be no Pakistan without Muslimness. And the entire narrative is that, oh, without Muslimness, there would be no violence. Well, if you ask most Muslims what has been happening to them, not just under Modi, but since partition, is been incredible violence against them. Regularly, there have been pogroms against Muslims recorded over a you know, 70-year period. Um, every year, there are vi- uh, what they call communal riots. 80% of those people killed are Muslims. All of those are nearly instigated with cooperation of local, um, st- local states, local authorities, etc. What happened under Modi in Gujarat it was just one of the biggest examples. But they're constantly happening, and they've been happening for a very, very long time. And there's so much studies that can show that. So there is no argument that, oh, it's religion that creates violence. This is one of the, again, one of this kind of ignorance of even recent histories. The wars, the most, one of the most brutal wars was the Second World War. Um, A war between, um, where there was hardly any religious element in that war. It wasn't a war Mm. over um, disputes about, um, you know, different interpretations of the Bible, mm. this was not, this was a nationalist war. Um, you know, the war again, the, 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 um, um, the First World War was nationalist war. So the idea that somehow the conflict in, 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 in Palestine is a conflict of religion is to misunderstand and misdescribe the conflict as what it is, is a conflict of settlers versus colonialists. It's an anti-colonial struggle. It's got nothing to do with religion. You can have rabbis and imams and and priests sitting together and talking quite in a civilized way. This is not a theological dispute going on here. What the Palestinians want is the ability to have their land and to have their autonomy in their land. That's all they want. It is not an, a question about whether do you believe in the Trinity or do you believe, um, um, you know, in sort of Jewish precepts, etc. It's not about that. It's not a theological mm-hmm. conflict. It's hardly there. So to describe it as a religious conflict is basically to misunderstand the role of anti-colonialism in that conflict. And I think again, it does. It's an incredible. Um, you know, Eurocentric way of thinking about these conflicts, because remember, every anti-colonial struggle described by the European imperial powers was always a struggle about barbarians against civilization, about civilized forces, about these people were self-motivated um, selfishly, they didn't really care, it was only the stiff upper lip of the British or the French um, administrator that kept order in the world. It, but this was not the experience the murders, the rapes, the tortures conducted by the colonial authorities on a regular basis were never brought into this um, picture. And this is why Mm. this kind of, uh, you know, this is a kind of historiography of imperialism, which was very fashionable in the 19th century and the early 20th century. It, It is always shocking that it continues to circulate in liberal circles, um, even now.
Okay, uh, Professor Sayed uh, Khan frequently talks about this concept of New Medina, you know, that, that Pakistan was meant to be. And what do you think New Medina meant in the, in the struggle for a Muslim homeland, like leading up to the establishment of Pakistan in 1947? Uh, what was that vision? And was it about, you know, creating this just another nation state or something like symbolically and meaningfully larger? If, if you wanted a nation state, why didn't you have a Punjab or a Gujarat or a Bengal, right? Mm. Under the European definitions, which were the ones that they, um, were in play at the time, you would have that these countries had their own kind of languages, they had their own kind of linguistic um, possibilities. India or South Asia would have been a, a number of different nation states, if you think about the normal markers of nation state, right? So the question is that that was one issue, but the, what the British wanted was what they uh, uh, united India. And the, 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 the anti-colonial struggle was on one hand between the, the British rulers and those who were um, subject to that rule. So that became one of the biggest things. So when you are in a position of weakness, then what you need to do is build lots of cross-cutting alliances. So if they had gone for a kind of, if Bengal and Gujarat and, and Sindh and Punjab and Kashmir and all gone for separately to have their own states, they probably would have been in a weaker bargaining position with the British authorities. So that's the first point that I think we generally want to make. The idea of Pakistan was not a nation state. Mm. And nor was it an attempt to recover a lost political society. Pakistan wasn't about recovering the Mughals or the Delhi Sultanate. It was about building something new. And the mm. traces of that still remain, for example, in Pakistan's citizenship legislation, however disfigured it's been. The idea of who could become a Pakistani. And, and at least from 1947 to mid-50s, when the citizenship law was changed, what you were required to become a Pakistani citizen was away from these kind of xenophobic uh, markers of citizenship, like having to be born there or having a particular kind of ethnicity. I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners will know who the first Pakistani citizen was, or who had the first passport. Passport, Pakistan passport number one. And this was actually Talal Saad's father, who hmm. was a Muslim revert who, who was born in Austria. So in a sense that you have a state being built, which is not nationalistic, which is actually saying that it is for something grander than that. Mm. And, and therefore any Muslim, even in South Asia, whether this were, you know, from Karela or from wherever, could in theory be part of Pakistan. Now, what has happened is this, that while the inspiration and mobilization for Pakistan was on the basis of Muslimness, its governance, as you know, I mentioned before, has, all, has been for large part under these Kamalist, um, in her, um, basically these, these Kamalist successes to the colonial order, which have tried to create these very kind of nationalist, xenophobic, semi-racial categories. Hmm. So I think the idea of a Medina is the name, is a metaphor for building a better society 
which is mm. actually inclusive and future orientated. Mm. I think the challenge that I would put to uh, to you know Imran Khan and those around it is not that um, the idea in itself is wrong. The, the mm. challenge is this: to, to so, for example, talks about you know Riyasat Medina to build a welfare state. To do that, you have to do other things. You can't build a welfare state based around Medina without having progressive taxation, for example. Mm. You know, countries like Scandinavia in, in Scandinavia have, you know, 50-50% taxation of the, the GDP is taken over there. So there are things which have to be done to transform these metaphors for hope for a better life into practices and protocols which actually deliver on that better life. And that, I think, is the challenge that remains. And, and, and the problem is not at the level of the the, the delivery of that vision. And I think mm. one of the challenges is, is this, that there's a failure to recognize that to deliver that vision means that you have to engage in a very predatory international environment. This mm. is one thing that the successful communists um, in Russia and China understood. They had no illusions mm. about the West. They did not think that what they were doing would be aided and abetted by the West there. They were prepared for that. I think many, many um, Islamists um, have become rather inoculated with the idea of being benign and saying that what we can do is we can somehow reason and don't need to think of this as a predatory system. You take, for mm -hmm. example, um, what's happened in Tunisia. The whole point of the Tunisian Islamists was that we're not going to make the mistakes of Egypt. We're not going to be assertive. We're going to take the background. We're going to allow ourselves to be voted out of power. And what has happened to them? They ha the fate hasn't much different. And I think this is, and this is where you know um, the failure has been, that the global institution of Islamophobia basically denies the exercise of collective Muslim agency and works against any expression of collective Muslim agency. So when people talk about that they can see a scenario in which a economic crisis fueled by a, a, a government which has no legitimacy, popular legitimacy, which has been brought in to basically act as vandals, produces a situation in which you have an economic collapse which can only be rescued by um, let's say aid, foreign intervention, IMF loans, etc. But the price for that could be denuclearization. Mm. Now that is not a far-fetched scenario. So I think the idea that there's a failure to recognize that Islamophobia is global and that, that there are many actors, including for example, governments like the United Arab Emirates and you know, there's a whole axis, Cairo, Abu Dhabi, who are working uh, closely with Tel Aviv and Riyadh, et cetera, to build, to have, to, to try and dampen down the possibilities of exercise of uh, Muslimness in a, as a political agency. Because ultimately those regimes recognize that the only way to have a popular will and popular accountability requires the um, mobilization of Muslimness in those societies. So mm. what they're trying to do is make that impossible by making this much more nationalistic, much more narrow, much more xenophobic. So by mm. cutting yourself off the Palestinian issue, 
you start saying, actually, you become more and more narrow. So you're basically turning into a, a politics of cynicism as a way of making it impossible to come to the streets to mobilize and bring about transformation. And so I, I would say to you that that is really what is the case here. I think mm -hmm. the problem is not the idea of the Medina state or the idea of a Medina condition. I think ultimately when you think about when you talk to people and a few of them who are left uh, during the partition, what mo motivated them? Why did they want Pakistan in the end? They didn't want, want it for the price of watermelons. They wanted it for safety, but they actually wanted a Pakistan. And even though, and this is another thing people say, well, there were lots of people left over like the UP, et cetera. But the point is that that shows their level of political consciousness because mm. they were not motivated by simply selfish reasons. If you are only interested in saying, uh, because I have something affects me, I'm against it, is one level. Mm. But you know, like people like Gramsci and others, and I think make point that to be political is you transcend your locality and you make a general case that you are, it doesn't matter it is whether you gain from it or not. Um, Alhamdulillah, many of us on this call are comf economically comfortable enough. Yeah. But if we say that we want um, measures that help the poor, um, that shows a greater level of consciousness than saying we only want things which affect us. So in a sense, what you have around the struggle for uh, Pakistan is a politicization of Muslimness and an awareness of Muslim consciousness. And that mobilization could have been very, very powerful agent for historical transformation. And for a number of very contingent reasons, it has been domesticated and, and, and tamed and threatened and unraveled. This is why half the country was lost because that vision was given up on. And then we have these people saying, well, it, it, was, it was a failure. It was self-profitably prophesied. It was a failure because people were following your injunctions. They were following your policies. They were thinking like in those, in basically in Eurocentric terms, rather than thinking about what the new future could be. That was what was the cause of the breakup of the country. And look at them now. The kind of racism which said that Pakistan, uh, East Pakistan would be a basket case. Very soon, despite all its challenges, and there are many, uh, the senior government, its GDP per capita will overtake and sustain. I mean, if it's, it's, we have already overtaken Pakistan. What's left of Pakistan. So I think, you know, that's the real challenge in a way. And this is why I don't think the problem is with the idea of Adina. The problem is that the political consciousness that is raised was allowed to be dissipated in this kind of Kamalist um, cynicism and techno uh, technocracies. Hmm. Um, Professor, related to the, this previous question, and if we you know, talk about the Orientalist point of view uh, on the same concept of you know, New Medina, they, they say that you know, the, the Khan's invocation of this terminology like New Medina, it, it actually represents a backward Muslim mentality of some kind of like mythical and, you know, romanticized past. And that, you know, this, they say that this hinders a forward looking and progressive vision. And in fact, you know, some in the so-called decolonial school of thought, and they, they call the movement around Khan as a form of uh, decolonial fascism. Uh, the claim that is being made is that, you know, this, this ideological orientation is actually regressive 
it is authoritarian and the tropes frequently associated with islam and they so called you know khan brown shirts invoke the the positive connotation with this terminology um and uh, they say that you know uh, the and they just justify the ostensibly totalitarian and misogynist social order that you know khan and his followers want to establish so what how would you respond to that thing i would respond to those things Shabir asking, what planet do they live on? If you look at the current dispensation right now, are you going to tell me this current government is full of um, feminists? It's full of people who are not authoritarian or gangsters. It is mm-hmm. full of people who are known for their saintly behavior and consciousness and concern for the dispossessed and the marginalized. Is that what was being argued here? So mm-hmm. what is there? What is their rationale? How do you explain that? If you're going to call decolonial fascism, I mean, the point is that anyone who starts using fascism in this kind of political way, really, it gets in the way of thinking. You know they can't think if they're talking about throwing fascism as a political category, a polemical category. So what is the current dispensation? Who are these people? What would you call, um, you know, this sort of what is um, the government of Shabazz Sharif and his acolytes and the People's Party, the PPP and um, all the PDM alliance? Are they the vanguard of a new, uh, a new forward-looking uh, project for Pakistan? Are they not them? What, what circles do they come from? Are they the ones who are championing against misogyny? Are they the ones who are for, um, I mean, why, when you start acting in such partisan ways that you cut funding for, in, in, from mm-hmm. units which voted for PTI, when you're pretending to be a federal government and you're so partial, what is that? So that's the first kind of point that, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I just worry about the world that they live in. But I think the second more important point is this. These people don't, I wish they would read a little more than Reader's Digest. And the reason is this, that they don't really have a sense of what political projects and acts of foundation are. So you take the American Republic. If you look at the American Republic, you look at the kind of uh, narratives around it, you look at the terminology and the tropes that it uses, it harks back to Athens and Rome. Why is it called the Senate? Where did that come from? Look at the architecture of the Capitol building. It is very clear. The first military, first military units, they called them legions in the, in the American Revolution. So the idea of founding a political order is always going to be based on a certain mythology. But that's not really a problem because there is no political order which is not based on uh, mythology except, uh, you know, there isn't one. So the question is that whether you have a mythology of your own or you borrow someone else's mythology. And and that's the real issue here. So the idea that is what is wrong, why is Medina going to be more regressive than the idea of what exactly? What is the narr- what is their vision? What is the countervailing vision that they have? Um so I think this is one of the real, real problems. The foundation of political order always involves some kind of, um, it's like a poem. It involves both the new and the old. And the idea isn't, 
It's the idea how you translate for the conditions, the hopes that are contained in older stories and vocabularies which circulate. So it just doesn't make any sense to argue that this is the case, that um, the ideological orientation is regressive. I don't even know what that means. Um, what is the ideological orientation and why would it be regressive? So, for example, the uh, Bismarck, who was a, uh, a landed um, gentry, very right-wing uh, figure by all means, but also incredible skillful, was also responsible for introducing the most progressive legislation uh, around so, um, workers' rights and social rights. So this idea that each, there's a connection between particular policies and particular ideological orientations is not something which is, is, is apparent in the way that, in the tidy way that they think about these things. It simply isn't the case. So I don't, I'm not quite sure about the, you know, what the kind of, the basic project is that they do not like, because of Islamophobia, Kamalists do not like anything which is, um, which has some expressions of Muslimness in it. That's the bottom line. And how is this different than the colonialists talking about the regressive when they closed down the basically introduced illiteracy, not just in Pakistan, but similarly in Algeria, because those madrasas are acting as ways of resisting colonialism. And they closed them down on the basis of these being regressive elements. Every single act of colonial control was always done in the name of a um, getting rid of uh, regressive and problematic elements. And what they meant by regressive were those who resisted uh, the imposition of the cruelties of the racial colonial order. When Mustafa mm -hmm. Kemal says that he wants to change um, the holiday in Turkey from Friday to Sunday, what is the point of that? It, it's not, there's no one can tell me that, you know, this is somehow significant. It is significant because it is an attempt at de-Islamicization to make the country more Western. It doesn't have any more liberating function. And Mustafa Kemal did this as part of an authoritarian project of transformation, which meant uh, in many cases, imprisonment and killing people. Mm. So I just, I, I, think, um, I think I don't share the same uh, view or understanding of the world that they have. And perhaps that's why we come to these different conclusions. Okay. Uh, Professor Sayed, very important question here. Uh, you know, there is this constant debate uh, over civil and military relations in Pakistan. And sometimes, you know, Khan himself has been accused either of being in cahoots with the military or he is just being termed as authoritarian and dictatorial himself. So the, the premise of this whole discussion tends to be that, you know, the, the democratic rule is good for the country and that the military has always, you know, been responsible for Pakistan's problems. Uh, the military, you know, they say that the military has been a great liability to the flourishing and security of the country and the criticism goes on. So uh, while this is obviously a very complex topic, you know, so would you care to share like some brief reflections on this debate? And, you know, while we are on this, this topic of uh, democracy versus military rule, 
could you share your your broad reflections on how we should how we should think about the term democracy uh when this term remains uh mired in this lexicon of colonial modernity i think this is a really important question i think there's two issues here one um i would say to you since the um last 30 40 years uh, since musharraf's time let's say you've had rule by two political parties um who have championed democracy but i have yet to find any democratic element in those democracy those parties they seem to be like family um, heirlooms that you pass from father to son or mother to son or however it goes family members brother to father etc so you now have so you have dynastic rule the sharifs and the puttas and the zardaris kind of um, on that so how is that again democracy so the question then becomes slightly different do you want to have dynastic politics or do you want to have politics by national institutions or institutions mm. which are capable of representing them nationally so that it seems to me is is the first kind of thing um antonio gramsci talked about political parties not just being um you know um, parties but also for example a newspaper could be a political party and certainly you can make the case that to some extent in pakistan history that the only national political party has been the military or the establishment itself that it has been a national institution and to this date um and again this may change no chief of staff has been able to make their son chief of staff yeah and certainly it's in many ways you could argue the military has been far more meritocratic um than other institutions on that I think there is a real problem um in, in in this point because it's a problem of elite capture and it's a problem of lack of ideology uh, to actually and a lack of understanding of what Pakistan means rather than um the structural problem you can have military regimes which are transformational and reforming and you can have the kind of facile uh, semi competitive elections in which basically one party takes turns to plunder the country another party takes another turn to plunder the country so in parts of latin america you've had parties for 100 years who basically exchanged four years they would be in power four years the other people would be in power but they were basically all in the same way they just took turns at plundering and there was no kind of um, tr- transformational improvement of people's conditions etc so i think the real issue is this is about what are the mechanisms for accountability and i would say to you, you can't reduce democ- democracy for me becomes very very problematic because the west would only consider things to be democratic when they are completely pro western that's ultimately the thing um and if they don't have pro western outcomes they don't delegitimize the democratic credentials we saw that in in, in palestine when the people elected hamas basically they were told not to elect hamas we saw that in afghanistan when another outcome come they had to have a re-election again and the way things are going maybe this will be the outcome for pakistan as well that you would have to have a, the only elections that count are the ones which meet certain kind of criteria which is determined there i think the real issue is about accountable and transparent government and recognizing the certain kinds of frameworks that can uh, facilitate that i think one of the problems with pakistan is that the electoral system was based on um 
is highly problematic. Most countries who have become um, independent since 1945 have tended not to use that political system because they realize that that, um, that system is, isn't countable enough because it depends on particular kind of patronages and particular concentrations of votes and things. So these are technical matters. But fundamentally, I would say to you that the issue isn't, the problem isn't that it's about civil military relationships. The problem is that who will speak for the vision of Pakistan as a expression of Muslimness that was actually behind its creation and formation. Now, I think there's an opportunity through the mobilizations that have been uh, occurred um, that the PTI is perhaps the only national party is becoming a national a, um, organization. If it's able to sustain and consolidate that, um, then I think it, it could be transformational um, because then it can't do what, for example, the Sharif, uh, no, uh, Shabazz Sharif has just done, that just because you don't vote for me, I'm going to, you know, if you're a national entity, you to balance all of these things together. So I think the civil military, there's no doubt that military is interfering, but I have no, I don't have the same confidence that a, another 30, 40, 50 years of the dynasties, rotating dynasties between Sharifs and Zadari Bhuttas would have actually meant any um, any major transformation or any um, anything better. So I think it's, it is a complicated issue, but I don't, I think it's, the problem, for example, the, the, the problems that have ailed Pakistan, I think there's enough of them uh, for the blame to go around for both the military and these established parties, which become part of the establishment, and the judiciary. The only thing I would say about the PTI and Imran Khan, it has been a latecomer, relative latecomer to this. Hmm. You know, these, the, P, the Muslim um, League and, 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 and the People's Party, they've had almost 50 years of actually being better than what they are. Um, mm. and, and so that, it seems to me, is really what have they achieved in that? In between them, various places, they've managed to lead to a situation where Pakistan is teetering on the end of economic um, collapse. Mm. That's what okay, they're uh, Professor Sayyid, related to the previous question, uh, there is another important thing I want to ask. Uh, how do you see and how do you envision the role of Pakistan that that Pakistan could play, you know, within this larger Muslim Ummah or this larger Muslim community? Uh, because, you know, with, with regard to this horrible predicament in which Indian Muslims and Kashmiris find themselves, uh, do you think like there is a there is a role for Pakistan to play? Because some in Pakistan, they argue that, you know, the Pakistani military or Pakistani state should stay out of the fears of neighboring countries, especially like India and Afghanistan. And they claim that uh, Islamabad's interference always causes more harm than good. How do you comment on that? I, I've never, I, I, I can't comment upon that, is that this is again a, um, a ridiculous position. There's some people who think that Pakistan has, is, is some shriveled up country with no responsibilities for anything else. The famous phrase, you know, um, beggars can't be choosers. But mm. I don't think Pakistan should conceive itself as a beggar. It certainly has choices. It has made decisions which have been helpful and supportive. If Pakistan did not support the Kashmiri struggle, do you really think 
what the situation of the Kashmiris would be now. It is at the moment of Pakistan's weakness. As Pakistan has grown weaker, as capacity to interfere is limited or capacity to do anything has been limited, the plight of the Kashmiris hasn't improved. It's got worse. You know, uh, so I think that's the first thing. Similarly, um, the American Soviet occupations would have continued without the support of Pakistan in there. I don't think the idea that Pakistan shouldn't interfere in other places is that it, it is, but other countries are also interfering. And Pakistan is actually, you know, the sixth most populous, fifth most populous country in the world. It has a role and responsibility to play. I would rather that it played that role uh, in a more open-hearted way. Mm. But if it becomes simply a narrow, rotten, post-colonial, semi-nation state, it will not be good for the people of Pakistan. It will not be good for the Muslims of the world either. You know, there's a, a, a famous quote by Ali Azobegovic, um, the leader of Bosnia, um, uh, you know, former president of Bosnia, saying that Pakistan is our great hope and our great tragedy in a way. But give you a small example. If it wasn't for um, Pakistani, Bangladeshi and Malaysian um, soldiers, the supporting um, the Bosnian Muslims while they were being, uh, being massacred, they would, be, they would have suffered even more greatly than they did. So the issue really is this, that if you, do you really think if Pakistan was stronger, there's an argument to be made that the plight of the Muslims in India would perhaps be less severe. So I don't, um, you know, say that Pakistan shouldn't get involved. Why not? Everybody else gets involved. You, United Arab Emirates is getting involved. Tel Aviv is involved everywhere. So what is it about Pakistan? Why is it so weak or so pathetic or so contemptible that it has no place in the world? This is not how many others see Pakistan. Um, you know, it is, it is a very large country, but it's not the size of the country itself. It's also the hope of that inspires. Sayyid Qutb talks about Pakistan and Indonesia as acting as, as, as a kind of examples of possibility for emancipation for other Muslims and other non-Muslim uh, anti-colonial fronts. Mm. You know, uh, the fact that in the 1980s, the Pakistani cricket team refused to play against apartheid South Africa was significant. It wasn't just the West Indians. It meant that other, you know, a, a cricket team that was quite powerful and strong was actually able to say, well, we will not be playing apartheid. So I think people who say that it shouldn't get involved, what do they actually mean by that? And I also argue most sensibilities of um, Muslims would involve trying to make the world a better place. It's, it's not a bad thing to do. Um, Professor Sayed, I want to end by asking you two very important questions uh, from an incredibly important piece that you had written You know, at the time of uh, uh, at the time of Imran Khan's election. And you wrote, and I quote, uh, while the leadership of the Crescent of Hope may be instinctively or martically conscious with ordinary people in these countries sharing a commitment to Islam that no amount of sneering by those who deem themselves to be their betters can weaken. There remains an influential segment of in-between people that prevent the possibility of decolonization. 
this this mixed stratum is made of astoxicated wastrels muddled headed cynics and even well meaning technocrats who have been schooled and socialized through orientalism they have neither the inclination nor the imagination to seize the opportunities for a fundamental decolonial realignment in a world that is institutionally islamophobic the sight of a crescent of hope can herald the dawn of a better future unquote um professor sayed those who are familiar with your work uh, may categorize many of these elements you describe as the kamalist in our societies and uh, could you briefly say something specific to to the role these strata play in contemporary pakistan and perhaps like uh, specifically in relation to the movement around imran khan including during his uh, ouster and the popular outpouring that ensued well i think one of the things about the ouster uh, is that you basically have um, brown sides complaining about imran khan's brown shirts and and i don't think that's a you know it's interesting who are the people who are complaining about um about the the possibilities of of that government and again this is not to make an excuse for the government you could have argued that it was too slow it was too you know it did many many mistakes and things like that there's no doubt about that as well but the question is that what is what offers a better hope for the future um a government by people who are you know who are currently in power whether they are in sitting in the national assembly or elsewhere or a government which tries to realize the kind of hopes and aspirations which were fundamental to the formation of pakistan itself so i think that's the first thing i would say i think the description that i give i and i stand by it that there is at the end of the day there if you don't have some kind of uh, imagination for a better world you will simply end up being this kind of parroting what is available and unfortunately a lot of our technocrats because of their kind of orientalist education and this is not true of just uh, when i say us, i mean among the muslim ummah itself that you know in many countries in turkey in 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 iran and elsewhere you have this kind of middle level of people who are who have been schooled and who have not been able to decolonize themselves or their educational system so they don't understand um the possibilities in and the dangers of simply replicating what they're taught what is considered to be um uh, you know a, a way of thinking of the world in in those kind of horizons so they simply reproduce the um, repertoire of policy prescriptions that are given rather than imagining something new and different yeah so those are those that they may be well meaning but when they are confronted with a challenge they think in terms of nationalist real politic because they think nationalist real politic is the only way to uh, to make things work but the fact is nationalist real politic is actually conditioned to support the existing order in which their countries and their um, projects will always be subordinate so that's one example i think what i meant by instinctively and i think this is a case that and this is where i think you know the um, the successful um, political organizations for change spent a lot of time educating themselves and educating their cadres to think critically about these things and we don't we have uh, so therefore you have these people who may write, could be ergan or etc or ramon khan or others who instinctively arrive who have under have an instinctive untutored perhaps understanding and through the force of circumstances and personality they're able to bring these transformations over 
The question then becomes how you embed those in a fundamentally, in a way that prevents them being undone by uh, elite capture orchestrated or convergent with external interests. And, and, and that, I think, is one of the biggest problems that we face. So the idea of these sort of Western-style um, liberals is that, and here I think Pakistan is slightly different than um, perhaps um, Egypt and, and Turkey in this regard. Because of the Pakistani diaspora, the ability of the liberals to try to outflank by moving into sort of metropolitan circles and making the argument against um, a kind of decolonization of Pakistan is limited. It's far more limited because there's large Pakistani diaspora who is experienced the kind of racial colonial logics every day and understand what the European powers are and the American uh, America is about. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, why has the government, this new government basically tried to um, disenfranchise overseas Pakistanis in one of its first acts? It's not the number of votes, but it's also the fact that when, when um, Pakistani liberals find it more difficult to penetrate metropolitan liberal circles because there are diasporic Pakistanis who are able to challenge their kind of views and they find themselves very, very uncomfortable, hence the talk of their brown shirts, etc. Um, and I think that is something which is quite important and quite restrictive. But I think the general point remains that there is a need for a clearer articulation of a future in which Muslimness is actually central to the projects of betterment, because only through Muslimness can Muslim societies be held accountable and be transparent and be interested in actually making a, the, the condition of the majority of the people and the minority of the people better. So if you want a more transparent and accountable order in, uh, in the Islamosphere, you have to then articulate that through a form of Muslimness. And that means you have to, refu um, you have to fight against Islamophobia. Mm. And the fight of Islamophobia is not just a trivial, or, um, but it is existential. It's not just about Muslim diasporas or Muslim populations in Burma and Palestine and Kashmir and wherever other parts of the world, you know, um, which we know that they're happening. Um, yeah. It is actually fundamental to the existence of a, a, a Muslim uh, agency for populations which are described as Muslim. Because yeah. the other route would be a massive kind of de-Islamization at a global scale, which is would not be without cost and without immense bloodshed, and it would not actually achieve anything. The de-Islamicization in Andalusia did not produce necessarily a better, more tolerant um, Spain. The de-Islamicization of the African-Americans who were um, kidnapped and transported to did not produce better societies. So in a sense, the, the the existence of an active Muslimness underwrites the plurality of this planet and guarantees a future. Because through plurality, it means that there are other possibilities remain awake. Mm. But that I would say to you is, is really the key kind of possibility here. Mm. Uh, so finally, here is another important quote from that same piece. 
um khan has the potential to be the final piece in the jigsaw that can establish an arc of autonomy a crescent of hope connecting governments and peoples in the enterprise of building an alternative to the islamophobic world order unquote professor say do you think that khan wasted this opportunity and do you think that the fact that he remained mired in orientalist logics contributed to it because we have said like uh, it's a very important thing the tragedy of pakistan is that those who believed least in it ruled over the country while those who believed most in it never got to rule so what do you mean by that and on a more positive note do you think the last 3 years in particular have generated new islamic state and this decolonial possibilities in contemporary pakistan i think look i think um you know i think the pti uh, government could have done things differently yeah um i think it could have been more aggressive in terms of what it was trying to do i think it could have been more more kind of systematic and and they will always respond well we couldn't do this because of this and that and and you know these are kind of tactical kind of issues and things like that i don't i think they they didn't reckon on on the resistance that they would encounter i think that's one of the problems that they had and there were a number of issues that they were the lack confidence perhaps to see them out and i think that's so that's one case i think about the what i've written about you know the tragedy of pakistan being ruled by people who don't believe in it is i stand by it i mean i think with a few exceptions there has always been a situation that and i don't mean ruled by just the kind of the head of the government at any time i'm talking about the kind of the actual middle strata you know the people whose children are the so called liberals for example who are liberal intellectuals often it's that the enormity of pakistan's formation uh is 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 actually very very difficult to imagine and think through because pakistan is created almost out of it's created from nothing and this is why when people talk about it's a retrograde step looking back no it's actually one of the few countries on the planet which basically starts with nothing almost it starts with an almost absolute zero that is the kind of um the 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 kind of greatness of its foundation and the and the challenge of its foundation in a way it's not an attempt to recover a past a, a realizable past um it is actually an attempt to build something new that's you know even the name pakistan for example and the fact that it took that name rather than any other name it could have taken so in terms of hope i think the only hope i mean the crescent i think of hope existed but i think what's happened since the um, arab spring has been a focus uh, by um riyadh and abu dhabi and other uh, and others try and do everything to roll back the potential of that opening and and i think what has been the case is that so i would argue right now that the positions the kind of positions in in the world around the question of muslimness are divided between the forces of absolutism whether they are wearing crowns or whether they are uh, military dictators or um, bathist hangovers like in uh, uh, in syria and the forces of accountability and the challenge is the forces of accountability have not really been able to see them uh, haven't acted in 
concert as much as one would like them to do so. They have not been able to, um, they don't have uh, equivalent of a sort of a charter of those kind of positions. They haven't been able to, they haven't really recognized themselves as, as a body. So, and, and what they're now facing is this concerted effort of convergent actors rolling them back. Uh, you know, we'll see that MBS will be going to Turkey. Um, the Israeli president's already been to Turkey. There's pressure on um, all of these kind of uh, movements. So I think they have been perhaps negligent, is one way of putting it, in thinking about the need for a for the forces around accountability to a stake their case and to join the struggle, because the people are already involved in the struggle, but they're having to do this without coordination and without being able to, um, without coordination and cooperation, which would actually enable them to make greater headway. Uh, and this is why, you know, the, the, the disaster thing about Imran Khan not going to Kuala Lumpur, for example, or not thinking about, we need another kind of agency, uh, another organization, uh, another concert of powers. I think, you know, um, countries which have got accountable governments, and I put it like that rather than that, should be part of that kind of thing because they will all, are all under threat. I mean, it was interesting when after 20 years of uh, colonial rule in Afghanistan just now, you have many of the Afghanis talking about foreign interference in Pakistan when they were actually positioned by the Americans, who I remember last time, I remember, were not exactly indigenous to Afghanistan but also arguing that, you know, we need to join up with Tel Aviv because the problem is Islam. So the idea that there, you know, so there exists a Islamophobic front, if you want to put it like that, but there doesn't exist a similar front which is arguing for Muslim autonomy in, in a focused and concerted way. And I guess the chance and the need is for that. Um, mm. uh, as to build up that kind of um, convergence and coalition of um, people, not necessarily just governments, to make that case. Because if mm. we don't make that case, then you will lose the states. If you lose the states, then what happens to the Rohingya and what's happening to the uh, Palestinians is not un un unimaginable. So one way of thinking about Islamophobia is the me mechanism for the Palestinianization of all Muslimness. Mm. And, mm. and if we don't uh, engage with that, if we don't um, you know, engage and, and push back on that, that is, not, that is, that is a real danger. Mm. And you will never have enough wealth or enough privilege to insulate mm. yourself from that when it comes. Thank you very much, Professor Salman Sayed, for this very informative and illuminating discussion. And I think that the viewer got a chance to appreciate of the subject in the discussion. And uh, I really hope the more such discussions go around on the on the alternative media, you know, so that we can have the clarity in our in our policy choices. So again, I'm thank you for your time. Thank <laughs> you.